Hey, I send you greetings from Ridgepoint Community Church. It's so good to be back with you. Look, a huge part of my heart is always going to be connected to Calvary Church. Right? This is a place that God uh, raised me up for over a decade in the ministry of the Word, loving on people, taught me how to be a pastor, and I love this place. I love what God's doing here. Uh, I'm glad, though, that it's not just at Calvary, right? That God's Spirit is working throughout numerous churches in the Grand Rapids area, makes it all the way out to the lake shore where God's people really wind up, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but it is great to be with you guys this morning. Look, I grew up in a weird family. All right, my family was not like other people's, because I'm sure everybody says, no, no, my family was weird, and you're probably right. <laughs> but no, my family was weird, weird, right? You see, my folks, when I was just a young kid, decided to start fostering children and eventually started adopting children. And my family was different than anybody else's family. We had all kinds of shapes and sizes and colors and skin tones and everything. Like, my family was different than anybody else's. And I remember when my brother Kelly was born. Kelly is my only biological brother. And when Kelly was born, he was born with some pretty severe uh, mental disabilities. And that rocked us, of, of course, as a family, especially my mom and dad. But Kelly wound up leading us into a very beautiful, difficult, but beautiful life. It's hard to kind of imagine uh, how does a, a little special needs kid lead you. But if you've ever been around those with special needs, you begin to recognize how they are able to take you to places that you wouldn't naturally or normally go. And so, because of my younger brother's developmental disabilities, that led my mom and dad to start caring for other kids with special needs. I remember some of the kids that we had. Some of them were foster children, some that my folks eventually adopted. The first kid that we ever had, her name was Kiera. Cutest little girl. And she had a tracheotomy. A tracheotomy means that she had uh, basically a, a little tube in her neck. That's how she breathed. Now, I told you, my family's strange, right? My family's sitting around this ginormous dinner table. And if I clear my throat, <clears throat> like, no problem, right? But when Kiera clears her throat, <clears> throat, boom, things go shooting, right? You're covering up your plate. I mean, look, I told you, my family's not normal. One, one of my little sisters, her name was Caitlin. At nighttime, we had to put gloves on Caitlin's hands, even in the middle of the summer. Was she cold? No, it's because she liked to pull out her hair and eat it, okay? My family was different than everybody else's family. I remember little guy, his name was Richard. Richard was the cutest little guy you would ever see in your life. His mind had been slowed through disabilities and his body was racked with cerebral palsy. But Richard loved life and he would just crack a smile. I mean, it would like break his face in two. His smile was so big. Little Richard had these arms that seemed to go on into eternity and these legs as well. Tiny little body, but these limbs that just went on and on. And the best thing about it was he actually looked like a miniature version of Richard Pryor. I kid you not, like a spitting image of Richard Pryor, right? My family was different than everybody else's family. I remember my first uh, little brother that my folks took in that had special needs that they sent. God calling them to adopt. His name was Cody. And Cody was kind of like dynamite. 
for our family. He's the first kid that you wanted to see when you came home. He wanted to come up and give you a kiss and everybody wanted a kiss from Cody, right? Like this kid had gone through all kinds of surgeries in his young life. He was born with spina bifida. That means that your spine is born kind of outside of your body and has to be surgically kind of put back in and his hips from, uh, from his hips on down, he was paralyzed. He had a tracheotomy as well. He also had something called Arnold Chiari syndrome, which had to do with where your brain stem enters your brain. He had shunt tubes in his head, all kinds of different things, things that could make somebody better or not happy and it didn't matter what Cody was feeling even if he wasn't feeling well he was always happy always happy and I remember as a high school kid like our family we just like fell in love with this little guy and and, and as a high school kid I, I I taught him to say some things that I probably shouldn't have taught him to say okay so I'm going to tell you right now uh, if you're older and you have little brothers or sisters these are not things that you should do but I thought it was hilarious you see Cody had the cutest little voice Because of the tracheotomy, it was harder to kind of get air past that to his vocal cords. And so his voice, imagine kind of like an 80-year-old woman who's been smoking since she was six. Imagine that voice in a a little five-year-old body, because that's basically what he sounded like, okay? And I wanted to teach him how to say butt munch, okay? That that was going to be my, I was going to say, that way he would say it to people, and he's so cute that he could get away with it, right? So I couldn't say it, but he could. So I was teaching him how to say butt munch, because then people would be like, what did he say? And when you heard Cody say it too, he he, he just said buck monk, buck monk. And people would be like, oh, isn't that cute? What did he just, call, what did he just, buck monk? And I thought it was the best thing ever, because he kept calling him butt munch, and they didn't even know that it was happening. My family was different than any other family that I knew. And I loved my family. I mean, it was great growing up in that environment. Being around kids with developmental disabilities, with physical disabilities, all kinds of different races. I loved it. And it made me who I am today. But I remember, as much as I enjoyed it, I remember also how difficult it was. It wasn't easy. There were times where we would have nurses in the house almost 24 hours a day. Alarms going off. Things that most people would find, oh, that's kind of gross that we just kind of dealt with on a consistent basis. Times where a brother or sister was in the hospital over holidays and it would take one of my parents away. Often it kept my parents from being able to come and see some of my sporting events when I was in high school things that they weren't able to engage in because of... It was not easy. I'm not going to sit up here and tell you that like everything was peaches and cream and puppies and, you know, smiles. It wasn't. But it was still the most beautiful family that I could ever imagine growing up in. And I loved my parents for doing that. But I can remember as a young person thinking to myself, having conversations with God, God, thank you for putting me in this family, but God... I won't ever do that. Not because I wouldn't do it. It's just, God, I couldn't do it. God, I don't have that kind of patience. I don't have that kind of love. I I don't know how to sacrifice like that. Thank you for what my parents have done. I'm so thankful. And God, raise up other people to do that. It's necessary and it's needed. But I, I wouldn't do it. I couldn't do it, God. And I was right. I couldn't do it. I want to move back to that in just a minute. But if you have your Bibles this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. Who's got a pew Bible? I'm not using a pew Bible today. 
So I can't tell you what page that's actually on. 203, thank you. Page 203 in your pew Bible. Now before we shift into our text, though, I want to make a few assumptions about what you guys have probably been talking about thus far in your study on 1 Samuel. So let's just kind of refresh ourselves on these first 16 chapters. At the very beginning of Samuel, we learned that God's original and best plan was for him to lead Israel himself, that God was to be their king, right? However, due to Israel's selfish demands, the Lord agreed to rule Israel through a human king. Okay, his first and best plan was to rule them himself. Israel wants their own king, and so they have these selfish demands. They say, give us a human king. So God says, fine, I will rule you through a human king. The first king is King Saul. And King Saul fails in a big way because he refuses to accept God's authority. That's basically what it boils down to. And now we're moving in to this time where things begin to shift. Chapter 16, which is what I'm guessing you guys either looked at last week or maybe the last couple of weeks. David is anointed as Saul's successor. And this is where David is completely different than Saul. Whereas Saul had a hard time embracing God's authority, David has no problem embracing God's authority. In fact, he's called a man after God's own heart. That title is actually given to David back in chapter 13 before we even hear about David. Now, in chapter 16, we see that David is anointed, right? And the entire chapter is a vertical narrative, okay? It's going up and down. It starts with God down to the world below. So God instigates all the action. He even speaks to Samuel in order to reveal what his intentions are, what he wants Samuel to do, that David is the one to be anointed. The whole chapter is a vertical. It's between God and the world below. And now we move into chapter 17, and everything becomes horizontal, It's a horizontal narrative in which David himself takes the initiative and delivers one of the most penetrating, powerful speeches in all of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Now I will tell you, when you open up your Bibles to page 203 and you look at chapter 17, you read that it's about what? David and Goliath. Yes, I would like to uh, especially thank Jim for giving me the David and Goliath story. One of the most difficult stories to actually teach on because every single one of you has heard this story about a thousand times before, right? It's pretty interesting that this happens to be the week that he's on vacation, right? Yeah, I see how that works. David and Goliath is one of those stories that we've heard so many times that quite honestly, it's easy for us to just kind of say, yep, been there, done that, heard that. I'll turn my brain on when they pray and it's time to go out of the doors. I'm going to ask you not to do that. And I'm actually going to ask you to take a fresh look at the story of David and Goliath because sometimes we hear something so much that we have preconceived ideas of what it's really about. Uh, Sometimes when you hear about something so much, you can be disappointed when you actually get to see the real thing. Uh, I had an opportunity probably about eight or nine years ago now uh, to go to Paris Uh, Brenda and I uh, went over there. We had some friends from a previous church that he was stationed there for work. So we had a free place to live. That's what I'm talking about, right? So we went over to Paris. And one of the things that, of course, when you're in Paris that you have to see is the Louvre. Now, we went over to the Louvre and uh, we went there right at the time that the doors opened. And our friends took us straight back to the Mona Lisa, right? I mean, if you're going to be in Paris, 
you got to see the Mona Lisa. I mean, we've heard about it for years and years, and you've seen these pictures, and it's like this amazing painting, and you can actually see it in person. And so there we were. We're hustling our way through the Louvre because it's way in the back, and we get there before anybody else. We're the first ones to be there, and we look at it, and it's the size of a postage stamp. I mean, the Mona Lisa, I expected this like monstrosity of beautiful paint. You're like, oh, it's so, no, you look at it. It's literally, it's about this big. I mean, it's tiny. And you walk away thinking, that's the Mona Lisa. That's what everybody was talking about, right? Those moments where you've heard about it for so long and then you actually get there and see it. It's like, now the Grand Canyon, I had a chance to visit about seven years ago. Now, I had seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, and you see these pictures like, oh, it's so cool, and it's so pretty, and la da 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 I thought, yeah, okay, I'm out in Arizona, I might as well go take a look at it. I was not expecting much, and I got out to the Grand Canyon, and I will tell you, I was blown away. I mean, there, there is no picture that can do justice to what you experience in God's creation in that place. It, it's just overwhelming. What I hope that happens today is when we actually look at the actual text of First Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath as the narrator, the author of this scripture, God himself has laid it out for us that it will be more like the Grand Canyon than the Mona Lisa. That will be something that expands and we say, wow. Look with me in verse 1. We're going to do a fair bit of reading. I'm going to skip through a few parts, but this is a story, and it's a good story. So we're going to actually read through a good chunk of it, and I'm just going to kind of comment as we move along. Sound good? Verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soka in Judah. They pitched camp at Aphis Damim between Soka and Azekah. Finally, we've gotten those out of the way, thankfully, right? Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Now, I'd actually read in one commentary that uh, at this time, a lot of other nations believed that Israel's God was a God of the hills. Like, you don't want to mess with Israel on a hill because their God's strong in the hills, but get them down into the valley and their God can't do much in the valley. So this was kind of this idea that, you know, certain gods work better in certain places. And so the Philistines come and they line up on one hill and the Israelites are on another and the, the battle's supposed to happen down in this valley. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now that's all good and fun. Six cubits in a span. What in the world does that mean? Basically means about nine foot, nine inches, somewhere in that ballpark. Now, nine foot nine, we think to ourselves, wow, that's tall, right? Like Shaquille O'Neal tall. But no, no, I actually had Kevin draw me what nine foot nine. Now, uh, nine foot nine is actually the top of the plume. Now, I'm probably about David's height, okay? Uh, I'm about five foot eight. That would have been about, you know, an average, maybe even on the taller side for uh, an Israeli guy at this particular time. So 
Okay, you see? Now, the other thing is it says that he had armor, armor that weighed 5,000 shekels. Okay, that's what he wore. That's 125 pounds. I've got 125 pounds of weights right on here. Ah! I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. That could happen next time though. Okay, this is 125 pounds. Okay, this is what he walked around with, slung over him. Okay, and it was not a big deal for him. It's obviously a big deal for me. Okay. 125 pounds of armor, and then it says that he had a spear, a spear that weighed basically 15 pounds, just the tip of it. Now, they don't even make a 15-pound sledgehammer, they make a 12-pounder, and so we got a 12-pounder and a 2-pounder and a 1-pounder all taped together here. This, this is how heavy just the tip would have been, all right? Real men are able to take it in like one... And I'm not a real man. This is how heavy just his spear would have been, okay? You get hit with something like this, I don't care if it's blunted, it's going to do damage. You put a tip on the end of it, it's going to hurt. This is what the Israeli army saw. That guy, that tall, wearing that much armor, carrying a spear that was 15 pounds just on the tip. Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. <coughs> Note to self, be careful with the voices. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and afraid. Now the story goes on in verse 12 to talk about David, that he's at home with his dad. He's a shepherd. His dad tells him to go to the battle lines to bring some supplies. Verse 16, it says that this had been going on now for 40 days. The Philistine keeps coming down and taunting the whole nation of Israel. Okay, Go to verse 20. Verse 20 says, Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Now, I've got to stop here for a second, right? Uh, you got to, who's the person that's finally going to say, come on, guys, really? 40 days you've been coming out, right? It's the morning. They're like, yeah, who's ready for some battle? I'm ready for some battle. Uh, you know, they're chest bumping and stuff. They're coming out to the battle. Line. Woo! Yeah, let's get it on right now, right here. Somebody's got to just say, look, for real, guys, you've been doing this for 40 days and you're like quaking in your boots. You're not going down to fight. Stop screaming. You're not fooling anybody. But for 40 days, they keep drawing up the battle lines. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. Verse 22, David left his things with the keeper of the supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. 
Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. Then David's older brother gets all ticked off that David's there. What are you doing here, you little punk? Get out of here. You shouldn't be around here. This is for the real man. Go back to taking care of the sheep. Blah, 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 blah. Takes us down to verse 30. He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. A warrior from his youth. I like to train dogs, okay, specifically protection dogs, okay, dogs that bite, like police dogs, that's kind of dogs. That's, I enjoy training those kinds of dogs, and I've learned a few things about dogs over the year from doing that. Some dogs are all show and no go. Kind of the Tom Olson of dogs, okay? If, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I'm ki- it was too easy, guys, it was too easy, okay? No. All show and no go, right? Like the dog's on the end of the leash. Rawr, 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 rawr. And then you come up to the dog and do one of these. And the dog's like, rawr, you know, and backs up, right? All show, no go. Now, there are some dogs that are no show and all go, right? They'll just sit there, minding their own business, but you get too close and that dog's going to snatch you up. You know what I'm saying? Now, there are other dogs, though, that are all show and all go. My friend, his name's Wade. He lives down in Ohio, and he uh, is also into training dogs. Wade had imported uh, this dog uh, named Dingo. Dingo was a GSG-9 dog. GSG-9 is the German Special Forces. This dog had done tours with the Special Forces. I don't know how Wade wound up with him. Usually a civilian's not able to get a dog like that afterwards. And this dog was all show and all go, right? This dog was out on the end of the leash, letting you know, like, don't get near me. This is my space. I own it. You get in here, something's going to happen. And he was for real. You got into a space and boom, you were going to get nailed. My friend found out that that could happen, not at the most convenient of times, right? Some dogs are all show and all go, and that's exactly what Goliath was. Look, Goliath had been training since the time he was a little boy. From the time of his youth, he had been trained to be a stone-cold killer. It's what he did. He had all the things that he needed, the weapons, the armor. I mean, everything that a person could need, he had with all the experience to handle his business. Drop down to verse 36. David is explaining to Saul why he can fight. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. 
The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. This is when Saul then tries to put all of his armor on David. Okay, now remember, David's probably about my size. Saul is uh, a head taller than everybody else. So he's got this armor. They try to put it on David. I'm sure the helmet's like falling down over David's nose and he can't see nothing. He's like, no, 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 I, I, I can't do this. Armor's not what's going to save me. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of an interesting picture, right, that that it's being presented to us here. I I mean, I'm sure David was older, but the narrator almost makes him sound like, you know, he's a 16-year-old about ready to take, you know, senior pictures or something. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's, he's there for school... Glowing with health and handsome. And the text says that Goliath despised him. Verse 43, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. That's not very nice, Goliath. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, and listen to this, folks, because this is right here. You ready? This, This work is good. You come against me with the sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Come on now, David. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead And he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. There's a number of things that the narrator, the author of 1 and 2 Samuel, wanted us to get, wanted us to see. See, there's things that David sees and hears that other characters in the story do not. Listen, listen to these differences. In verse 11, the Israelite troops see and hear an intimidating soldier from the Philistine camp who looks and sounds invincible. David, however, hears and sees only blasphemous defiance of the armies of the living God. That's verse 36. You see, in verse 24, everybody else sees reasons for fear and hesitation. But in verse 32, David sees only reasons for taking immediate action. In fact, when when he's going into the battle, it says that David starts running quickly towards Goliath. In verse 11, everybody else sees despair. But in verse 26, David sees an opportunity for national vindication. David had the correct perspective. You see, he 
saw everything through the eyes of faith. And this is a theme that begins to be repeated throughout First and Second Samuel. David had the right perspective. I want to show you a picture. See that? If you're looking at it at just the right way, it looks as though there is a man holding the sun. But is that a real perspective? Is that an actual picture of reality? Well, of course not. We know that no man can actually hold the sun. But that's what it looks like in this picture. The true reality is the reality that no man holds the sun. Only God alone holds the sun. Now this goes back to my story with my family. I remember telling God, God, I'm so thankful for the family that I grew up in. I loved it. It was phenomenal. But God, I, I, I won't do that. I can't do that. That's just something that goes beyond my capabilities. I don't have what it takes to be able to deal with that kind of a giant. Now, it didn't mean that I didn't care about orphans, okay? I very much did. When I was in seminary, just after I had gotten out of college, I got my first regular paying job, okay? A steady income. Now, it was still below poverty level, but it was steady, okay? So I decided I was going to support a compassion child, kind of adopt a, a compassion child. I was dating my wife at the time. She was Filipino. So I thought, oh, I'll get a Filipino kid. So I went down and there was this table of faces and children and names and I started looking through and I would love to tell you that I had prayed and fasted and God just directed me, but it actually, my choice came down to the fact that there was a little Filipino boy named John Lennon. (laughs) That's why I chose him. His name was John Lennon Felisarta. So me and John Lennon became buddies as I started to support John Lennon. I cared, right? I was willing to do something that was some sort of a sacrifice, but I couldn't go here. Now probably about Five years later, I was in a conference. Tony Campolo was speaking. I have no idea what he was talking about. He certainly wasn't talking about adoption. But God spoke into my heart at that time and said, hey, I want you to adopt. And so I kind of thought, okay, that's cool. I didn't know who, what, when, where, why. Okay, I just knew God had kind of said that. I was like, all right, that's fine. But God, you know I won't go there. And then last time I taught here, I shared the story of how God spoke to my wife and I, while I was sitting right back there, one of the services, and God came and told me exactly who I was supposed to adopt. This is where things got Goliath for me. You see, because the little boy that God told me that I was supposed to adopt had a feeding tube, was on oxygen, he was born four months premature, They said that he had an enlarged heart. He was going to have chronic lung disease, heart and respiratory monitors, and all kinds of what-ifs. This could potentially happen. This could potentially be. This could potentially be. And I said, God, you know I can't do that. I already told you I wasn't going to do that. But thankfully, slowly, God allowed me to see who actually holds the sun. You see, there are times in life when we want to count the cost. And I would love to tell you that I counted it as quickly as David. Jesus himself says you ought to count the cost, right? 
And, and so when we hear the story of David and he rushes out into the battle, we think, man, that, he's just young and rash and, and, and he doesn't know what he's doing. He wasn't counting the cost. Well, I, I, I actually think he did count the cost. I think he looked and he saw a giant. And then he looked and he saw a giant God. And he added it up really quickly and said, all right, let's go. Now, I'd love to tell you that I was as courageous as David and that I instantly said, yes, Lord. It took me a little bit longer to count the cost. But at the end of the day, I began to recognize that God actually holds the sun. Look, I don't know what kind of Goliath is staring you in the face today. I don't know what kind of a Goliath may be shouting at you, right? Maybe it's the giant of confession. Maybe you've had an affair and you're hiding it. Maybe you're actually dabbling in one right now. Maybe you stole some money from the company or you stole some time and you're looking at this giant of confession and you think, you know what? I can't go there. That giant is too big. It's going to cost too much. Who holds the sun? Are you looking with the right perspective? Maybe the giant for you is the giant of addiction. Maybe you're sitting here and you're saying to yourself, man, I've tried. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I keep getting my tail kicked. The giant keeps winning. I can't do it. And we continue to allow the lies of what we think our reality is to trump the true reality of God's word. When Paul says we are no longer slaves to sin, we have been set free. Look, I'm not saying that it's easy. It could be porn, could be alcohol, could be food, could be drugs. The giant of addiction is huge and tall and has been a fighter since his youth. You know what I'm saying? We have to ask ourselves, who holds the sun? Maybe the giant that you're looking at is the giant of adoption or foster care. You know God cares about the orphan. And you have the ability, the time, the space, the resources to do something about it. But you just feel like, man, I can't go there. It's too big. It's too much. It's too life-altering. It would change too many things. And God is simply asking you to say, who holds the sun? Who's the real giant here? I mean, I can only imagine what William Wilberforce would have thought some 200 years ago when he said, as an Englishman, slavery is wrong. And so for years and years of his life in English Parliament, he fought to end slavery in England. And finally, three days before he died a bill was passed abolishing slavery. When he started, do you think he thought to himself, too big, it's too big, it's worldwide, I can't do anything about it? I guarantee he felt that way. I guarantee he thought it was too much. But then he remembered, who holds the sun? God is bigger than any giant we have. Bigger. We can't see a giant guy. We have to see a giant God. Right? You can't look at the huge spear. You have to look at the Holy Spirit. You can't look and say, it's just a giant. You have to look and say, he's a just Jesus.
And when we take that leap of faith, when we see with the eyes of faith, everything changes. It's kind of like if you grew up eating spam steaks, right? Spam steak every night is what you know. It's fine. It meets the need. You've never had anything else. It's just what you assume you're supposed to have. And then somebody says, hey, I want to take you down to the chop house. And you get a 28-day dry-aged filet mignon. What? Right? You cut into that bad boy and you take a bite. Spam steak will never do ever again. Okay? And that's the kind of faith God wants us to have. Don't, Don't settle for a spam steak. God's offering 28-day dry-aged filet mignon. That's the kind of faith that he wants us to have. And it's so much better. And God just wants to offer it to us. He says, look, I'm bigger. Whatever the giant is, God is bigger. I'd like to close by simply sharing some thoughts from the great theologian Grover Levy. He penned these words on his drastically undervalued 1995 album, Giants in the Land. He says this, He did not bring us out this far to take us back again. He brought us out to lead us into the promised land. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. Though there be giants in the land, we will not be afraid. He did not bring us out this far to take us back again. He led us out to bring us in to the promised land. David believed this. Do you? Will we believe this? We have to stop eating the spam of small faith. God's meals are so much better. Trust the one who actually holds the sun, not the one who pretends to. Let's pray. God, thank you for an opportunity to open up this beautiful story. God, a story of faith, a story that shows us the kind of heart that you desire. God, it's a heart that says, I trust you, I believe in you, and I will act on that. God, we want to be people who live in that reality. Help us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.